This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Helen Joyce is author of Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality, recently issued as Trans, Gender Identity, and the New Battle for Women's Rights. Until April 2022, Helen was The Economist's Britain editor. She joined the paper in 2005 as education correspondent. Subsequent jobs include Brazil correspondent, international editor, finance editor, and executive editor for events. Before that, she edited Plus, an online magazine about mass published by the University of Cambridge, and was founding editor for the Royal Statistical Society's magazine, Significance. She has a bachelor's degree from Trinity College Dublin, a master's from Cambridge, and a PhD from University College London, all in mathematics. Helen now works as Director of Advocacy for Sex Matters, a human rights organization that campaigns for sex-based rights. Additional information about Helen can be found in our liner notes. And with that, here's our conversation with Helen. All right, welcome back to Transparency. Um, we are, uh, I'm Aaron Terrell, uh, joined as always by uh, Aaron Kimberly, and uh, we are very excited to have Helen Joyce uh, with us today. Uh, I think we've been meaning to get you onto the podcast probably since since we launched. And then, not that we've been like actively uh, 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 kind of trying to schedule or anything, but anyway, long story short, been stoked to have you on here for a very long time. So, so glad to have you. Thank you for being here. Ah, you're very welcome. Um, why aren't you trans? Why am I not trans? Um, it literally would never have occurred to me. I mean, I'm a bit old. You know, this is an idea that I'm, I'm 55, in case you're wondering, and this is an idea that really hasn't been suggest sold until very recently. So the very, very, very few people who had occurred to spontaneously before the last 10 or 15 years, you know, I, I just wasn't, I just didn't fall into those categories, a very ordinary straight person who, you know, fell in love with a bloke, got married, had two kids. You know, why would I be trans? It was, it was literally not an idea that ever occurred to me any more than you could ask me, why am I not uh, you know, an angel or a cat or any of the other things that people imagine being. So just never thought of it. I've been wanting to, to, to kick off a podcast by asking someone uh, that before and catching them off guard, but it didn't work on you, so. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you're talking to somebody who's thought about feck all else except trans issues for five years now, so. <laughs> that's fair, that's very fair. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I it, it is it, it is a good entry into the, the topic of your book, though, because, um, I mean, even in the introduction, you make that distinction between those that were transsexuals, but, you know, as we used to call them in the early days, that, that they were few and far between and uh, a response to a to a condition. It was a very rare what used to be called gender identity disorder. But then there's been this new movement of teaching these concepts through, you know, and expanding them as, as I can't remember how you put it, you put it so much more eloquently than I can, but these ideas. I mean, maybe, shifted... maybe saying, yeah, maybe saying that it's a culture bound syndrome or that it's a social contagion. I mean, it's both of those things. But also concepts like gender identity being applied across the board as though this is something that applies to everybody, not just 
you know, uh, a select handful of people that that had a, a diagnosable condition. Exactly. I mean, I've just been reading um, just by chance today a piece that somebody shared on Twitter about doing mental health interventions in schools, uh, like for everybody, not just trying to find kids who need extra help and giving it to them, but doing things like mindfulness or um, I don't know, particular sorts of therapy en masse to everybody. And, you know, I can tell this does not surprise me as the mother of two sons. It makes kids worse. Like you shouldn't be teaching kids to ruminate and you shouldn't be giving people mental health concepts and then sending them off to think about them on their own. Like people who weren't anxious become anxious. Uh, yeah, so I think it's a bit like that. You teach people that everyone has a gender identity and that's what makes you a boy or a girl. And you go, huh, okay, I better think about how, what, what my gender identity is when you might have lived a happy life never thinking such a thing in your life. It's a, it's a good point. And I mean, to, to uh, joke, go on. I was I was going to say, you know, I mean, to Aaron's opening question, why aren't you trans? I mean, it's similar, I guess, if we had asked you, why aren't you anxious? And if we continue to ask someone, why aren't you anxious? Are you sure you're not anxious? Like, there must be something you're anxious about. It it does plant the idea in people's heads. Absolutely. There's nothing that makes people more anxious than thinking about what they should be worrying about. And, and that's so obvious. Like we used to understand these things. It's like we've forgotten everything that we knew about what makes people well, happy, healthy, mentally healthy, and are actively trying to do the worst things possible. I mean, John Height and Greg Lukianoff wrote about this in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And I think it's just John Height has a new book coming out, but maybe again, it's a joint book. And it's really specifically about the incredible worsening of mental health among young people. And, you know, he contests, and I think he's right, and he's got loads of evidence that we're teaching people to be mentally unwell in school. So I do, I mean, I see, I try to see the, the gender contagion, you know, as part of various long run trends or to put it in various contexts. And one of them is the teaching of mental unwellness. Like, why would you do that? It's incredibly stupid. I admit that I did, that, um, I mean, I'm familiar with your book, but I don't know a lot about who you are and you know how you because uh, you have been very much invested in this public conversation now for quite some time but what who were you before all of this erupted and and what led to your interest in the topic and writing the book i mean i've given the origin story of the book a lot of times um so maybe i'll try and tell you a bit more about the things that make me tick um that, rather than that um, so, I mean, as I mentioned, I'm 55. I'm the eldest of a large Irish family, nine kids, and I've got five brothers and three sisters. Um, they're very sporty. I'm the only non-sporty person in the family. Uh, they're very Cricket is the, the family game, and several of my siblings are uh, international class cricket players or were. I mean, you know, the youngest are now, what, 40, because they're 15 years younger than me, the twins. So, like, everybody's left their their professional playing days behind. Um I always liked maths best at school, mathematics, I, but I went on to train to be a dancer and that didn't quite work out. So I went and did a maths degree and then I thought for a long time I was going to be an academic. Um, and I, I do, I, I have had a very episodic career, like I went on and did postgraduate work and then I took an abrupt shift and went into public understanding of mathematics and science. And I enjoyed that very much. I worked for the University of Cambridge and the Royal Statistical Society for some years. And then I just applied for a job at The Economist when I saw it advertised. And I thought for the 17 years that I was there that I had found something I could do for the rest of my career because, you know, by the standards of academia, I have a very short attention span. Now, it's quite long by normal standards, but academics tend to, 
you know, fix themselves on one tiny little part of a, an obscure discipline and work in that for maybe 40 years. And I quickly realized I just couldn't do that. I got too bored. And it's, I like applications, but I'm not a very practical person. So the maths I liked was all very pure maths. I, my PhD was about a counterexample to a very abstract theorem that was in infinite dimensional spaces. And I still don't think anyone has ever used it for anything. So, um, you know, I like abstract ideas, but I quickly get bored as somebody who likes abstract ideas. I want to talk to people about them, think about how they matter, think about what they do. So yeah, journalism worked really well because you tend to move beat every few years and The Economist is at the cerebral end of journalism as well. So it's quite like a fantasy of being in a university uh, common room where you talk about ideas seriously and you debate things. I was very happy there um, um, and I left on good terms. I didn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't destroy its reputation in my mind or anything like that. It was just that I landed on a story that wouldn't let go. And that does happen to journalists sometimes. Um, you know, I know journalists who have got very into the environmental cause, for example, or sometimes people cover a story like, say, Israel-Palestine or um, somebody I know who became very, very interested in big philanthropy. And then they go and they work in that field instead. So it's not unheard of that a story grabs you to the extent that you can't let it go. And that's really what happened to me. I um, I discovered this story. Um, it it piqued my interest in a way that nothing else had really in my adult life. And I think that's because it is actually a very abstract concept. Like it has that, it has that pure mathematics thing of it's easy to say, and yet the, the ramifications are large. So when you, and, and this is true in my thesis as well, in my PhD thesis, um, you know, I've been trying to find out whether, God, I, am, I, am I seriously going to try and explain this? Yeah, okay, I'll have a go. I don't think I've ever tried to explain this <laughs> for about 25 years. So I was working in a field called geometric measure theory, okay? And this is about when you look at shapes and you look at them um, from the point of view of thinking about their size and their dimension. So a lot of it is probability because probabilities about the size of things, like how, how likely are various outcomes, that's a measure, right? So you're measuring things, but they're geometric things. All right, you're nodding, that's good. And there was a question about whether or not a particular thing was true of a particular kind of measure. And that was an unknown question. Like, you know, can you find a counterexample to this thesis? And I did. I found one and it was an infinite dimensional space. And I found it in an instant. I'd been trying for months. And then I literally just saw a picture in my head. And I'm not a very visualizer person. Like, this is not a pretty picture or anything. It was basically just some little circles that overlapped and some points in those circles that were rather specially placed. And I went, ah, counterexample, we can do this if we go to infinite dimensions. And that, would, that ended up being the thesis. So very simple idea, but when you follow it through logically, you got to something that you didn't know before, like there were ramifications. And I think that the idea that people are what they say they are has the similar, you know, it's easy to say, but if you keep following it through, if you keep pulling the thread or you keep following the chain of reasoning, you arrive in places that were not intuitive. And there's a, that's always the things I've liked best. So like that's me rationalizing with hindsight. That's not why I did it. But I don't think we know why we do the things that we do. Like the origin story I've given for the book, and it is true, is that I did decide to write it when I met detransitioners. But I'd been looking for a reason to write it for months. Like I knew it was going to be trouble. 
I worried I wasn't the right person. I thought it was going to blow up my life. I couldn't see how to make it fit with the job that I was doing at the time, which was the finance editor of The Economist. And then I met these kids and that really just took away my doubts. But honestly, I think I'd probably decided it well before that. But I needed an excuse to do what I wanted to do. I think that probably tells you something about the sort of person I am <laughs> in some very um, sidelong ways. Ask me anything, as they say. So how did you discover it then? So like without- Oh, oh literally I was just asked by a commissioning editor. I was just, the, the editor sat down next to me, the editor in chief of The Economist sat down next to me at lunch. And at the time I was editing a section of the paper that did a long read each week. So I was looking for different topics. Uh, they had to be, always they had to be things that went across borders or that didn't fit into the science section or the finance section or the business section, because those are sections of the paper. So it was it was things like nuclear disarmament or um, trends in philanthropy or that, you know, uh, something like the Antarctic would be a classic example because it doesn't fit in any of our geographic sections, like governing the Antarctic. And so people were often suggesting to me long run trend type stories, like a classic one and not, not one that I ever commissioned would be the severe decrease in the well-being of teenage kids like where where does that come from it's something that you see on many continents and oh yeah um fighting malaria that sort of thing anyway the editor said why do kids keep saying they're trans and I I was like literally no idea I've never heard of such a thing my own kids were younger at the time and I hadn't heard this from them like now it's everywhere when, when this was about been? 2016 2016 or so uh, so I wrote an article in 2017, and then I wrote another longer article in 2018 that actually ran in Quillette, not in The Economist. And that was that that article in Quillette. If I look back at it, I think it was basically my book. You know, it was the thesis of my book that there's this simple idea that has these big consequences. It sounds like it's something about only a small number of people. Actually, it affects everybody, but it affects three groups more than others, and they are women, children and gay people. Um. Yeah, the book, like that's the book summed up and all of it was there in that Quillette article. So so then I was waiting for a year for an excuse to write it and then I got it. I'm old enough to remember the shift in thinking. I mean, at the time, so I transitioned in 2006. Um, so it was before this major shift in how these ideas are being packaged and how we're conceptualizing this experience. So at, at the time that, that I transitioned, we thought of this as what we call gender identity disorder and that we sought a treatment for gender identity disorder. And it really wasn't, in my mind, it wasn't really any more complicated than that. It was the creation of like a metaphorical space to accommodate a condition. But over the years, I've seen that completely taken over by this new way of thinking. And the, and the young people in particular, they don't know any different. They, they, don't, they don't remember that history. So for them the way these ideas are being packaged and presented to them for them, that's just reality. And, and I agree with you. And it's something that we are, are exploring in depth throughout this podcast is just the implications of this new way of thinking. And unfortunately the trans community seems unable to separate the trans experience and how they're constructing their identities from, from this new ideology that's, that's been created and impl implemented it makes it very difficult to have the conversation because people feel as though, I mean, this, this new language of we're being genocided and you're trying to eliminate trans people off the face of the earth. Really, we're just talking about how these ideas have been packaged and implemented. 
Yeah, I mean, what you describe as, you know, it's a mental health condition and we're trying to find a way to treat a tiny number of unusual people. That's what the gender doctors, the you know, the early gender doctors that I interviewed for my book said. I mean, I still have reservations about what they were doing, I have to say. But what they weren't doing was making a claim about all of humanity. And in particular, they weren't making a Cartesian dualist claim about all of humanity, which is what the way that trans ideas um, are packaged as now is. That was a terrible sentence. Um, they weren't making a claim about all of humanity that is a Cartesian dualist claim, namely that we are bodies that are vessels for something, and that something in this ideology is gender identity, but in past times would have been called your soul or your free will or your mind. Um, I th I, I've come to think that that is an extremely uh, powerful myth um, at least in anything like a modern technological society. Like one of, the, one of the great tragedies of humanity is that we're going to have lost all cultural diversity from prehistoric people who live in prehistoric ways, um, you know, indigenous peoples. We're going to have lost all of those people before we ever had a chance to think like how differently they thought than us. Uh, but in any modern society, meaning everything now, everywhere, except for some almost uncontacted tribes, we do seem to have this mechanistic idea, this way of thinking of our bodies as vessels and that ourself is a thing that lives here behind our eyes. And if you look at science fiction, which is something that I like a lot, it's a genre I really enjoy, you know, we have the idea that you could put your yourself in another body or um, that you could uh, put yourself to a machine or be made immortal by uploading your thoughts or so on. Like, I wonder, I wonder, is that something that people would have thought or would they have thought anything analogous before we had machines? I think people have thought that there are ghosts and spirits for a very long time. So maybe that's just the modern technological way of thinking of ghosts and spirits. But anyway, I, th I think this idea is seductive. The idea that there's a separate you, a real you, that's in some way carried around by your body and that your body might be wrong or that you might change it or that, you know, you could be a different, a different body and still be the same self. Like the more you think about that, the more you think that, is not meaningful it can't be meaningful you are your body but it feels very plausible and that's so i, think what I, it's I transitioned in, in i transitioned in 2011 and that that cartesian way of approaching the whole gender discussion already existed um in in at least 2011 um well obviously we know it existed before then but that's how i um I kind of understood my experience of dysphoria was through this lens of everybody has a gender identity for the most from vast majority of people that gender aligns with their sex but for some people like myself is again how i believed at the time my my gender and my sex are are mismatched and therefore i have this medical condition that is gender dysphoria and the solution is uh transitioning but so so it's kind of like both somewhere between what you both were saying is um so I believed, yeah, in this this concrete, discrete medical condition, but it was explained and I understood it through the terms of everyone has a gender identity. Um, and, uh, but, what, but as far as the whole kind of, yeah, get, getting into sort of transhumanist kind of uh, thoughts is I think that kind of what you're, what you're getting at with the whole, um, yeah, ghost in the machine type. I, I think we have always kind of, 
found ways to think of ourselves as immortal beings in possession of a body. I think I think it's just sort of a human thing to try to, you know, most of religions, they give us immortality. That's the appeal of them, right? And I think a lot of that is, you know, I, I also grew up um, evangelical Christian and I believe that I had a spirit that was, you know, that manifested in my body that would, you know, live beyond my body. And I think because I had that foundation, it was also quite easy for me to just uh, a, a kind of uh, adapt the the gender identity framework. Um, not sure where I'm going with that, but just other other. Like I think, I think th these are very human um, impulses. To I, I think that's yeah. right, and I, I, I know it, it does. It it does make me think. So I lived in Brazil for several years, and I wish I had found out more about indigenous cultures. I did visit uh, some indigenous tribes and some low contact tribes. Um, when I was writing about the rainforest and about attempts to um, to save it, basically, because, you know, they, they they know a lot of things about how to look after bits of it that, you know, again, will die with them. Anyway, um, it, it started me doing some reading about it and I never ended up writing about it. I couldn't find anyone who wanted to commission anything and the research would have been very difficult. I'd already left Brazil by that point. But I think I think you're right. You know, people have always believed in ghosts and spirits and what, you know, felt that something that the people that we lose who die, like the people that we love, when they die, they aren't gone, not really gone. And it makes sense to humans to say, like to ask the question, where were you before you were born? Like that feels like a sensible question, even though, and I, I mean, before you were conceived, but, you know, it isn't a meaningful question. There was no you, the, the egg and sperm weren't together and they might never have come together, you know? But what I think is different about our society compared with tribal peoples is the individuality of it. Like, I think we believe, we've always believed that we aren't just meat. You know, we don't just die and that's the end of it. But I think that the conception of it in a small tribal group of two or 300 people who are all related would have been much more communal. And this idea of ourselves as atomized individuals who can, you know, change bits of ourselves, plug things in and out, and, and nobody gets to say anything about who we are except ourselves, ourselves as a self-declared thing. That degree of individualism makes literally no sense if you live in a tribal community where everybody knows everybody else and everybody's related to everybody else and survival is a communal thing. Like the idea that you could turn around to the people around you and say, I'm not who you thought I was, I'm really a woman, or... I'm really anything. It makes no sense. They're the people who define you. So I guess I guess that's what's changed. One thing that came to mind when you're talking about you know belief in ghosts. I mean, through the the work that I've done as a nurse. I mean, we live in a very pluralistic society. So we I've encountered you know through doing mental health work, there'd be people coming through the hospital from all different cultures. There'd be people who had immigrated from China or wherever else, or who were just visiting and became unwell and hospitalized. And one of the things that I learned is the power of, of belief in a cultural context. And then cultures, um, I think Korea is one example where the belief in ghosts is just a mainstream concept that, that that's what people believe. And when you believe in concepts, you're more likely to actually experience those things. So they would report more incidents of interacting with ghosts because that idea, it, they're primed to look for it because of their belief. So they actually yeah, kind of manifest these experiences because of belief. Mm -hmm. Completely. So, yes, yeah, so I, I guess this is an idea. You know, this is this is a it's the sort of idea that it's not it's not counter to human predispositions this idea that you have a gender identity, everybody has a gender identity. Sometimes it can be the wrong one. It can be, you know, the pink brain and the blue body or whatever. 
there, there's always been a, a hole shaped like that in our psyche and then along it came and it dropped in and it you know it, it just it just felt right I think it took the place of a lot of other ideas for us as well like it, you know it was it was given a lot of cultural wings by things like the internet by organizations like Stonewall and um, the ACLU and HRC looking for something some new cause but yeah it is a very human experience to wonder who am I really? I mean, I've never had the gender identity one because I'm just frankly too ordinary that that would ever have occurred to me. But I, I, my mum told me that when I was very little, I became quite obsessed for a while with the idea that I might not actually be her child. I became really fixated on, I mean, when I say really fixated, it wasn't making me miserable, but she really wondered what she had done wrong with this question. It was um, how come, like, how, how could I be sure that I was really her child because I couldn't remember it? And I thought maybe she was lying to me and I was somebody else's child. And like I say, I wasn't unhappy, but I just would say it to her, you know, several times. I said, like, how am I to know that? You know, what if you're making this up and so on? Um, and then the idea just moved on. But you could imagine something like that becoming much more of an obsession if I'd been unhappy or if I'd been very different from my family in some way, particularly, you know, or if I hadn't had younger siblings and then you know, really seen my mother's belly being big and then the baby being brought home from hospital. So, you know. That made it seem more plausible, I guess, that I had been born to them. Yeah, so these ideas, like whether or not they occur to you and then whether or not they turn into an obsession can be very happenstance. One of the things I've observed through the podcast, it's and I, it's happened too often for, I think, to be coincidence. But so many of the people, like mostly like trans people that we've had on the show and talked to, I've been really struck by how many have said they came from Christian backgrounds and I, mm. and I, and that's happened over and over and over again. So trans people who are willing to talk to us and, and are share some of our concerns seem to seem to all be saying, and we didn't know this before we invited them, but then they, through the conversation, they say, yes, I, you know, I'm a Christian or I grew up in a Christian household, which made me wonder what might that correlation be. And I have, I have two wonders about it. One is, is there something about growing up in a conservative Christian household that might make one, develop gender dysphoria in the first place or is it that because we have already a worldview based in a in a christian faith does that somehow inoculate us from some of these ideas because these ideas do seem to be kind of fulfilling as you said this this hole in our psyche these ideas seem to be filling that gap and that hole as as our cultural because culture, our culture used to be organized around the the church and Christian faith, and and now in a pluralistic society, that's broken down. We don't really have a national identity anymore, at least in Canada. And these ideas seem to be kind of rushing into that space created by, yeah, to, you know. And, and I'm not saying that necessarily our, our that our that our culture should go back to being organized around the Christian faith, but it seems to serve a, a similar purpose for people. I've had some, I mean, I've talked to fewer people for a long times, I think, probably than you about they, why they're trans. But there are some trans people I know, and I've had trans people staying with me as well when they've been visiting the UK. And it's given me a chance to talk to them openly. Of course, they're very self-selected people because trans people who think that I'm genocidal aren't staying with me or talking to me. So I'm not saying that these are typical of trans-identified people, but the the men, the trans women, have been like the people that I've talked to, all of them have been on the far end of evangelical, um, have been brought up in far end of evangelical Christian families, like really unusually so for the UK where there isn't a strong um, 
domestic evangelical uh, faith. Like there's obviously, you know, people who come from Africa or whose families come from Africa may bring uh, an African charismatic faith with them, but I'm not talking about that. And I have to say that the examples I'm thinking of, there's two in particular, um, they're clearly gay men with enormous internalized homophobia. I think um, the, you know, if you believe in spirits and you believe in, you know, you're, that you were with with God before you were put on earth, like if there was a you before there was a body. And if you then believe that it's really wrong to be gay and you're going to be damned forever. And if you're taught to be deeply, deeply ashamed of your desires, but even before you are able to name your desires when you're a child, of the ways in which you feel different. I mean, gay people do tend to say that they felt very different as children, and that's a, quite a, an old and strong research finding. Then, you know, you would develop gender dysphoria. You would start to think, I'm really meant to be a woman. I really am a woman. And there's, as I say, there's the hole in your psyche into which that idea can fit, that there's really a you that's really a girl, and that it really just went into the wrong body. And I mean, one of those two people, um, you know, she, he, whatever you want to say, I'm going to say he, he, but I suspect you'd say she, would say that too, would agree with me. But still after that went on and had sex reassignment surgery. So, you know, knowing that he's basically a gay man, he still went and did it because the idea was just too fixed in his mind by this point that he didn't, he didn't think there was any way for him to go back to just having a standard gay identity. And he may be right too. At least he's clear about that. I mean, he's he's not, and that's been my experience. I, I've interacted with a number of um, what I what I'll just call homosexual transsexuals. So those that um, males who are, who um, they do understand themselves as as gay males. Um, it seems to be mostly the AGP cohort that that really have really invested in this gender identity framework. I mean, uh, them and the girls. Yeah. I mean, you know, that it's absolutely undeniable that the people, numerically speaking, who are pushing this more are female. Uh, it's young women. Now, I don't think they're the powerful ones. I think the story of how this spread around the world is not because teenage and young early 20s girls in the US and the UK and Canada and Australia are pushing it because typically they're not people who have much social power. You have to look at people like Rachel Levine for why this is so embedded but just numerically, it is the girls and it's the girls who are um, more religious in their impulse about it, too, and who are more intolerant of people who disagree with them and who, who do a sort of mean girl bitchy thing about it. It's quite painful to me as somebody who has always thought of herself as a feminist to look at girls pushing something that's so harmful to them, so obviously based on stereotypes and and just so um, just so ageist as well, you know, so so motivated like not only by but largely by wanting to be different than older women i think so the podcast with the people that, that do come on here are quite self-selected obviously as you know like the same people who would stay uh with with, with you helen are people who already um do not do not believe um kind of the, the current framework uh this is all sold under but um uh, what i found is <laughs> So, so 
the people who, who are, again, are, are the strong believers, the, the kind of the young woman you're describing, are people who typically actually grew up in secular households, yes. is, is what I've observed. And yeah, and because of that, that, that same need that we're talking about, um, they, they found their sense of, of purpose and community and whatnot through, um, yeah, the, 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 the uh, just the, the trans identity. Um, and yes, those are obviously going to appeal much more to yeah that, that same demographic who's more you know susceptible to psychic contagions, yada yada. Um, and that's that's what's so fast, and that's what I'm mostly uh, been been researching and kind of trying to figure out how this all happened. Is is yeah that so we know how it's enabled, and it's it, it's the yes the the typically AGPs who have who have power who have a vested interest in um, in yeah enabling and propagating this ideology, but the primary people uh, adopting it and being harmed by it are um, the adolescent females. And yeah, the really fascinating thing to me is all the, the like we were saying at the beginning, just how everything is completely upside down now and all the, you know, the actual, you know, people who, you know, spent their lives studying developmental psychology are the same people who are writing them, you know, referral letters and yada, yada. And how we got here is the, I think the most, um, yeah, there's just so many, so many different forces that, that have kind of led, um, I'm rambling again. No, but it is, it's so many different forces, but there's also, I mean, there's the power of the parents of the teenage girls as well. Um, so a lot of these teenage girls, they don't transition. They think of themselves as allies. Right. You know, they're people for whom this is their, it is their secular religion. And then they want grown-ups yeah. to agree with them. And I mean, honestly, like my, I have sons only, they're 17 and 22. I mean, I think they're great kids and I don't argue with them about things, but I have absolutely no need for them to validate or agree with anything I say. They can do what they bloody well like. And I'm not going to change what I think because a 17 and 20 or two year old tell me to. So I'm, but I'm amazed that a lot of people don't feel like that. They feel they've got to get with the program that, you know, that their daughters or their children, but their daughters mostly are wiser than they are. You're like, like, seriously, I knew nothing when I was 17. And I don't think my 17 year old son, he's a great kid, but I don't think he knows much either. So I'm not going to change anything for them. So there's partly this adultification of kids and this, um, I don't know if there's a word, kidification of adults like all the authority in families going to children, I think is part of it, because then the grown-ups are in a position of power and they do things like they don't have a trans child or, or they may have, but they need not have. They're not trans themselves. And yet they go into work and act like they've got to upend all the rules in work, you know, do journalism, do academic research, da, da, that their daughter thinks is right. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, and I don't know what, what to do about it, except to say to grown-ups, you know, bloody grow up. You're the, you're the grown-ups. You don't need to appease teenagers. What are they going to do about it? I mean, every generation, every generation has had its subcultures. You think of, you know, the punks or the goss or the hippies, but there's never been a time where those youth subcultures have been given human rights status and have made parents and afraid. And that to... the grown-ups must do what, that the grown-ups must go with it. You know, I, I know I thought my parents were wrong about all sorts of things, and I still think that they're wrong about they were wrong about some of those things, and they've come around on them. But other ones, I now think they were much wiser than I realized. But none of this gave them the slightest bit of concern. <laughs> that's the point. What do you think? What, what do you think the difference is? Because that, that's something that I haven't clued 
who didn't see. So you're saying that that non so young people, not trans themselves, but the hardcore allies. This is their religion, and they're the parents of these young people are also being allies for the cause. I, what, what do you think is causing that? Like why? why I, I mean, I, I've heard happening? from so many people, I've heard from so many people one way or another, sometimes in person, or they tell me the story over a drink, or they email me to tell me, and they say, my daughter, it's usually a daughter, my daughter said she'd cut me off if I said another word about this. Mm. Like really well-known people who put their head slightly above the parapet said one or two things of the sort of like, I don't, you know, maybe what JK Rowling said wasn't so bad after all type thing. Went completely mm -hmm. silent. I reach out to them in DMs or I'm, you know, I, I hear through a friend of a friend or something like that. And it's their daughter has pulled them in and said, you say one more word about this and you will never hear from me again. I mean, it's amazing. Like it, the entitlement. Because that daughter is your parents social. Like that. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, in I, I Canada, mean, it's, it's, it's spurred on from the daughter's social fear, fear of of association with that parent. Right. Maybe. But I mean, usually, more than that, more than just fear, I think it's it's a feeling of entitlement that she's so sure she's right. She's so self-righteous. Like, I got I, I really understand the desire not to be contaminated by a parent. Like if you're in young people that have such precarious jobs, so many of them, like if you're a freelance journalist or you're working in the, you know, the creative industries or something, and it turns out you have an unfortunate, you know, link to some middle aged bigot. That's a big problem. I get that. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking to people who think it's their job to lay down the law. I mean, one of the women who dropped me when I was meant to be speaking at something, a uh, middle-aged woman around my own age, and amazingly is qualified in um, in law as it human rights law as it impacts upon women. And so I asked around until I found someone who knew her, and she has daughters, and it's her daughters who told her. Like they're grown-up daughters. And I mean, she wasn't even meant to be the person who invited me. She was just somebody who could cancel me, you know? My own daughter disagrees with the work that I'm doing. I mean, being a trans man doesn't make me immune to to that dynamic with the kids. I mean, she's 18. How old is she? She's 18. 18. Yeah. So she's very, very much you know, invested and immersed in this way of thinking. And to her, I mean, as a trans man, I'm I'm a bigot for speaking about these things. But I mean, I, my approach with her is like we're I said to her, we're allowed to disagree. Right. Yeah. I'm not trying to change her mind and, and I'm not interested in changing my mind. Um, we're allowed to disagree. And and I think I think at least for me, with my relationship with my daughter, that's the healthiest way to approach it. You know, she Oh, I think that's to, usually she, the healthiest way. Yeah, she needs to think through these issues and trying to coerce her to to think like I do isn't going to be a healthy approach to the situation either. She's at an age where it's at she's supposed to be thinking for herself and pushing yeah. back on, on my parental simply authority. It won't work. Like it simply won't work. You will not be able to change her mind by doing that sort of thing. And uh, one of the people who did tell me a few years ago, uh, before my book came out, that he had had to go quiet because of his daughter. And um, I've since heard that she's completely gone through a 180 degree thing and now thinks it's massively harmful and is back talking to him about it and is thinking what she can do. So you leave people to make their own their own decisions you can help a bit you can talk if they want to talk you can you know drop hints in or whatever little breadcrumbs maybe leading them the way you want but you have to accept that they will try to do the same to you and and take that as well if you want to try to get them to shift you have to listen to them yeah but I mean we can't change people's minds people change their own minds I mean often because of things that they don't accept they don't realize are influencing them but what I mean is you cannot just drop a module into someone else's head ideas they haven't thought of and then suddenly they agree with you it doesn't work that way 
Unfortunately, here in Canada, they've taken it one step further, and and the you know the parental fear of their children being removed from their care is is, is very real. When we think of this as, you know, that these ideas now have human rights status and are protected by by human rights law, uh, and so then it 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 suddenly feels justifiable for child protective services to come in and and remove your children from your care if you don't affirm them or if you don't believe in these concepts. So it's it's unfortunately beyond just parental child disagreement and respect for that normal developmental process for teenagers that they're supposed to rebel against their parents to some degree that's developmentally appropriate. But now we've taken it into this whole new realm of possibility that disagreeing with your kids or, or being a parental authority saying, no, I don't agree with you suddenly has the impact of CFS showing up on your doorstep. Yeah, I mean, I've heard these stories, you know, here as well in the UK, where there isn't the same framework. I mean, obviously, California's trying to decide to turn this into state law, you know, I mean, it's a horrifying idea. But I was recently talking to people in Ireland, and the Irish Constitution was written shortly after um, Ireland was partitioned, and the South became a, a, the free state. And it says that parents are the ultimate authority on children's education. So that's there in our constitution, which is the strongest thing that it could possibly be. And yet schools are teaching these things that parents don't want them to teach. And when parents push back, they're told that they will be in trouble. I mean, even though, you know, they have extremely strong legal rights over this. And I was just being told a few days ago by a journalist who had written something on this in Ireland um, that shortly after her piece came out, uh, her child, who's totally fine and healthy and there has not been any problem with this kid and it's, this kid has nothing to do with gender dysphoria at all, but her child was reported to social services clearly as a, as a retaliatory measure, presumably by someone of the educational authorities that she had been writing about. So even in places where you have very strong legal protection, there are people who have gone so far beyond, they, they, I mean, I, I don't know if this expression is just Irish, like you've lost the run of yourself, like completely gone beyond the bounds of anything sensible or meaningful. Like they've just gone so wild that in a country where it constitutionally says this is the parents' rights, there are people who would report a journalist for writing a very ordinary factual piece about a gender identity story. Um, and it's nothing to do with her kid and her kid has nothing to do with it. Um, yeah. We're just starting here in Canada to see our provinces pushing back, similar to what's happening in the yes. United States, that the federal government is you know, imposing this framework and then some of the states are pushing back so some of our provinces are starting to push back with with policies that just seem like common sense to me so the the policy that two of our provinces have recently announced is that they don't want teachers socially transitioning children in the public school system without parental knowledge and consent that's under the age of 16. and i mean that's the most minimal thing that you could possibly imagine i mean who the hell can object to this, but they do, they object to it here. I mean, there are loads of schools in the UK, loads and loads of them that would do this. There's a school near me, um, and I know through um, through the grapevine, 10% of the kids on roll, and this is a school for 11 to 16 kids, a state school, not a private school, 10% um, 10 10 of the kids are on roll as something other than their birth sex, like either non-binary or the opposite sex. And I mean, we both know that's mostly girls. So they must be approaching one girl in five in that school who thinks she's not a girl. Well, we had um, a teacher and, reach out. We had a teacher reach out to us from the Canadian public school system, saying fifty percent of her classroom of preteens identified as something other than cisgender. Yeah, why would you not? Cisgender sounds very tedious. I mean, and their flag is black and white. 
I know. I think, I think there's a bit. I think there's a bit of grey. Like, but you know, what teenager wants that? And it's not even a thing. Like, it's not a thing to not be a, to, to not be ill at ease with your body. Like, I'm mean, of course I'm ill at ease with my body. It's fat. It's unfit. My bloody Achilles tendons are a state. You know, when I was a teenager, I felt the usual things that teenage girls feel. Like, of course I'm not comfortable with my body and comfortable with being female sex and comfortable with everyone that everyone thinks about what it is to be female literally nobody is that so of course you don't think you're cisgender like you just ideally don't give it much thought you, you uh, i have heard you say in other interviews that concept of of gender dysphoria being a culture-bound condition i'd love to explore that a little bit i, I agree with you i think the evidence points to that but i would just like to unpack how you arrived at that conclusion now why how did i find that one out um i mean i think i was aware that things like um anorexia and eating disorders generally and self-harm and so on were culturally contagious that they i mean you know i was a teenage girl once i saw things sweep through my school although i was fortunately a little earlier than the major anorexia contagion um and then I don't know, did someone suggest it? I think I started reading about suicide being contagious. Suicidal ideas are very, very contagious. It's one of the reasons you have to be careful reporting on suicide. And I read a book about that and it introduced me to this idea of social contagions and culture-bound syndromes. And then just Googling, I came across the, um, the work of Edward Shorter, who's a historian of medicine who coined the phrase symptom pool. And the symptom pool is the collection of symptoms that are recognized as symptoms of dis-ease in a given society. And much more than we realize, like the ways that you experience common misery um, are shaped by the culture you're in. So every culture we know of has some version of anxiety and some version of depression, but the details of what it feels like to be anxious or depressed in that culture do vary. I can't remember where it is. I think it's Nigeria. Somewhere like Nigeria, part of it is having a peppery feeling. So you know, these things are these things are very suggestible. Um, so what happens, according to Edward Shorter, is that there are these symptoms out there. And when you're miserable and you start to somatize, which is that you start to feel your misery on your body, you feel it in culturally appropriate and acceptable ways, according to the narrative that your culture tells you. So at one time, women might have felt their uteruses go up into their throats and start to throttle them like that's what they thought hysteria was. And nobody feels that now. Um, anyway, so I read his fascinating book. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. Um, anyway, it's it's his best known book about um, culture bound syndromes. And then that led me to a journalist called Ethan Waters, who wrote a really excellent book called Crazy Like Us, uh, possibly called The Globalization of the American Psyche. And in it, he talks about the chapter and verse of how we exported or America exported, to be precise, not just anorexia, but PTSD. So PTSD is not a recognizable syndrome in most of the world, even though, of course, people go through trauma, traumatic experiences and some of them really don't recover well. But the ways that we experience PTSD and this, you know, it, it's a very precise script that the traumatic experience replays and it doesn't fade the way that memories usually fade. It replays as vivid as if you are still in it and it's extremely intrusive and so on. That's not something that commonly happens to people in many other societies, including, for example, ones like, um, I think the, he gives the example of the Tamil Tigers in areas where the Tamil Tigers were very active. 
uh, where people, you know, saw family members die in front of them and had to kill people themselves. So they had very, very traumatic experiences, but they didn't feel anything that you could diagnose as PTSD. And he said, we teach these things. You know, when we send uh, therapists in, for example, to a school after there's been a school shooting, or we send mental health help to a country that has come out of civil war, we actually teach them how to be sick according to the American script. And I mean, that script may be good or bad. Like people are going to be miserable. There's going to be a lot of unhappiness, but you can teach good scripts and bad scripts. So a script might be, um, you know, you are a resilient person. This is hard, but you will come through it. The support of your family and friends and church and culture and doing good for other people will help you to come through it. And there's God who, you know, you don't know why this is meaningful for God, but it is. So have faith. And then another another script is this is going to replay endlessly and not fade at all. And you're going to need powerful drugs to, to be able to sleep at all. Um, you know, and you could go psychotic and hurt other people. And, you know, you so you teach people how to be ill. And in my God, I remember I kept getting shivers down my spine. There were bits on the, both of those books that I read them. And I just thought we are literally teaching kids the new way to be mentally ill. Because this is a really, really bad idea, telling children that you have a gender identity that's separate from your sex. There's nothing good about it. It's a very bad cultural script. It dissociates people from their body. You know, it makes them feel ill at ease with something that you cannot change. Like, you know, whatever about both of you doing the things that you did medically, you know, you know what you could and couldn't change. These kids are being told they can change things. And so, you know, then we're making mental illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that doesn't, get talked about a lot i mean you mentioned the impact of these ideas on on women and children and and homosexuals but i mean i don't see these ideas really benefiting the trans people either those that have transitioned oh, God, no. because you're telling all of us that you know we're, we're all suicidal and we're you know we're this and this and this it, it, like it, that doesn't serve us i mean this constant message in yeah. order to feel good about ourselves, we almost have to reject some of these narratives about transness because I don't want to be told constantly that this is such a distressing experience that I'm suicidal. I've never experienced that in my life. So I think the only people it serves are the people who want to transgress other people's boundaries. Mm -hmm. You know, so a, a man who wants to go places that women really very much don't want men to go, it's a very useful narrative for him. And that's a tiny number of people, but it's amazing how many of them are in positions where they can make it happen. You know, they're rich or they're people in you know government or they get themselves to the top of industries or whatever. And I, I often think that they're like the nuclear reactor. You know, there's the tiny bit of this whole movement that has so many different elements to it and so many interlocking parts. You know, one thing moves and that makes another thing move. And the law changes and then practice changes and then medicine changes and then the law changes again, you know. But always at the heart of it, there are these men whose really overriding desire is to intrude and overstep on women's boundaries. So, yeah, they like it. I don't think it's very good for anyone else. No, I mean, what we're up well, against with things like the legislation, like the school policies, is this fear that, well, these kids are going to commit suicide if, yes. if we don't immediately affirm them. But, I mean, watchful waiting had been the standard practice for many, many years. I'm not I'm not aware that all of those kids were committing suicide because they no, weren't they immediately weren't. affirmed. They're coaching kids to think about suicide. This worries me hugely because, you know, there's going to have to be a pushback. We are going to have to get back to a place where we say, you know, this child says they want to transition in school, and that's going to mean that they do things that intrude upon the human rights of their classmates. 
and also that they are doing something that increases the risk of iatrogenic medical harm in their own future. We can't let them do this thing. But by now we've got these powerful lobby groups that are saying, if you don't let them do this thing, they will kill themselves. So those lobby groups are not going to see sense, I'm afraid. So, if, you know, we're, we're, we're awaiting schools guidance here in the UK at the moment. And I know enough from the leaks and the chatter in Westminster and the government has actually got to the point that it's realised that school regulations and human rights law simply do not allow schools to let a child of one sex into spaces for the other in the UK. Like schools have been doing that, but they have been breaking the law by doing that. And so the government wants to tell them to stop. But the reason that those kids were told they were being allowed to be an exception to school rules that separated the sexes for things like toilets and changing rooms and sports, the reason they were told they were being treated as an exception is because they would kill themselves otherwise. And so what do you do when you tell them they've got to stop? I mean, this really, really scares me because the people who have been pushing these, these ideas, they have got no compunction and they absolutely are not putting those children's interests and never have been putting those children's interests first. Like anyone who teaches the suicide script has not got children's best interests at heart because that is not good for any child. They're not teaching them resilience. They should have been saying to those kids, yeah, this is a tough experience. You know, sorry to hear you're going through this. How can we support you? Not you will kill yourself unless everyone else gives up their own human rights and your parents bow to you and, you know, put you on a path to sterility. This really scares me. It kind of brings me to um, something else I want to talk to you about is where do you see this this going? You've, you've kind of uh, had a few predictions. Uh, you, you said something very um kind of kind of shook the way that I, I think about the future of all of this is, is you know, predominantly the parents who have uh, transitioned their children. And there's there's no, because I just keep thinking, you know, societally, where do, you know, slowly everybody's going to start to wake up like that young person you were telling about who had a strained relationship with her father, you know, she realized what, you know, will eventually all kind of wake up um, with the exception, even obviously trans people like Aaron and I, we had, you know, we um, kind of, you know, so everybody in in this is going to, as I understood it, slowly, if not suddenly, uh, wake up. And you have brought up a good point. Is like that's going to be very, very different for the parents um, who either push transition. I'd say predominantly those who push transitions um, on their children um, or went along with it without the insistence of. Um, uh, uh, medical professionals because I think that's another that's another grouping of parents is those who kind of didn't want to but went along because of the um insistence of of the medical professionals um anyway I'm just wondering like how if you've given much thought to how this all unfolds beyond um yeah the parents and, and I don't know just yeah. societally what this is going to look like yeah so a lot of people do think like what you said that you know more and more people are waking up all the time and I think that's true um I don't think that gets us where we need to be, and I don't think it can be fast enough in particular. The thing is that a lot of laws have been changed on the basis of this ideology. Gender identity is being written into laws, rules, policies, and so on, and it stays there until you take it out. And when you try to take things out of law, you're in a totally different place than when you're trying to put them into law. I mean, this is one of the things that the, the political economy theories, um, tiny lobby groups hold much larger groups to ransom. So suppose you have a policy that says that, like a, a policy or a law that says everyone uses the bathrooms and changing rooms that, of the, that they wish to use. Now, that's really not convenient for most people. And in particular, it's very bad for women. Suppose you get nearly every woman to agree openly that she wants this to change. 
The thing is, she probably doesn't want it to the extent that it's the most important thing in her life. She can probably go and use another loo if there's a bloke in work who insists on using the women's loos. She can stay away from this gym. You know, she loses, but she doesn't lose big time from the status quo. That bloke staked everything on the fact that he was going to be allowed to go into women's spaces. He may even have been sterilized on the basis of that. He's got everything to lose and he is he and a much smaller number of people, they are now a very powerful lobby because they care about this more than anything else. And so those things tend to stay in law for much, much longer, even though they harm most people and most people don't want them. That worries me hugely. And that means that you have to have as few people as possible who end up in that position where they've been given to believe that they can have something and then that thing is taken away from them. Because the more there are of those people, the harder it ever is to unwind. And of course, that's even more true for people who are children when they transitioned, because really they're victims, like they're victims of medical malpractice. And if you've got somebody who as a child was put on the puberty blocker, cross-sex hormones, straight onto surgery before they'd ever had an orgasm, before they even understand what sexual pleasure is or what it might be to be a parent, that person is the victim of a human rights atrocity. And now you're going to say that they can't be accepted as the sex that they were told they could be. Like, I mean, it's like the worst thing on top of the worst thing. So every one of those people becomes a roadblock to going back to sanity on these is this issue. It isn't a question of just trying to get numbers on our side. It's actual policy change and it has to be quick because the facts on the ground are what will stop the policy change from being possible. I mean, it, again, this really, really worries me. So it's not just the parents. Um, I think the parents who've gone along with it unhappily can also be a big roadblock too, because at some point you have to go all in. You know, I'm so sorry for these people, even the ones who pushed it on their children, actually, I'm sorry for them. You know, they're the poor sods who bought a, a cultural narrative. And you can look and say, well, that's a stupid cultural narrative, but then why the hell are we telling it everywhere? Why are we teaching it in schools? Why are we putting it on the, on the telly? Why, you know, why are governments pushing it? Why are doctors pushing it? Like. You should be able to trust these people. You know, if you're an ordinary person who's just trying to make a living, be a good parent, run your life, not fuck up too massively, you should be able to trust the institutions and the institutions have just let you down big time. I think it might be easier to not believe that, actually, to continue to believe that they were all on your side and that what you did was right, because it's very painful. But yeah, this is not a numbers game. This is not about... Um, yeah. popularity contest here we could get to 90 percent of the population understanding that this is awful i think 90 percent of the population do think this is awful once it's explained to them it's not stopping anybody in power in positions of power it seems like these ideas in terms of being implemented into law and policy i mean i i've never been an activist so i wasn't I wasn't aware of how all of this unfolded over the last several decades. So I'm trying to kind of piece it together and understand it in hindsight. But it seems like a lot of this accelerated when the UN got involved and wrote guidelines for international policy. Do you, do you think the UN is starting to shift at all in understanding that the way that they wrote those things is, is conflicting with the rights of others? I mean, I wouldn't say that that's really accurate. I don't no. think the UN has been the, the the big driver. It's definitely got on board and is now a roadblock to fixing things. I mean, funnily, the international uh, treaties are all very good on the subject of sex, uh, sex-based rights and there being two sexes. Uh, I was recently reading over um, the Declaration of Human Rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the, um, the CEDAW one, which is the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And they are so absolutely clearly talking about the two sexes, meaning bodies, not identities. 
you know, any time that they mention anything about men or women, it's in the context, like either they're saying don't discriminate against women, but whenever then they, you know, if they mention specific provisions, it's things that are related to gestation, breastfeeding, whatever. And the same for the Mandela rules, which are the rules about the treatment of prisoners. Um, there's a there's a section in that on the treatment of women prisoners. And it's all about, you know, no men, no other men prisoners, uh, no men guards, must be run by a woman, uh, special provision for lactation, don't imprison pregnant women. You know, it's so clearly about bodies, so clearly that it's actually very, very, very hard for the um, like the ideologues to subvert it. They are trying to. Um, and there are in the um, international human rights law community, there are lots of people who are pushing this nonsense, but the, actually the um, the conventions are a roadblock for them. I think, um, it, funnily, this one, a lot of the initiatives, the legal initiatives were local ones. They were either done piecemeal by bureaucrats or individual provisions on just one law without thinking on the impact on the law in general, or they were in small places. In, in, in America, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in America, until at least very recently, registration of birth and death and marriage was done locally, either at the city or the state level. And so lots of states or cities have been willing to change your birth cert for decades if you turned up with a note from your doctor saying that you'd had sex reassignment surgery, or they would marry two people who were legally both men because they were both male but one of them you know was a pretty convincing woman and was wearing a white dress you know they would they would marry them even before there was gay, gay marriage and so it was this patchwork and then here in the UK because it's an incredibly centralized country that didn't happen but what did happen was that bureaucrats responded to individual difficult cases specifically men who'd gone through sex reassignment surgery you know this is back in the 1960s 70s 80s where you know pensions were different, uh, dress codes were different. Uh, it said MRF on your driver's license and your passport. It would be really trouble for you if you didn't have one that matched your hair and your clothes and your makeup and so on. So bureaucrats would issue these men paperwork that suggested that they were female, but they didn't change the underlying data. And then you know this happened more and more. And then the fact that they had issued this paper paperwork started to be used as like it was a reaction just to doctors, actually. It was a reaction to doctors doing surgery. Like the doctors never asked before they did the surgery. They just turned out these atypical human beings, men with bodies that were trying to look female. The bureaucrats reacted to that and tried to make sure that these men could continue to work and continue to travel. And then the fact that they had that paperwork was used to sell the surgery to future patients, you will be accommodated. And then after this went on for about 20, 30 years, it came to be suggested that this was a right, that you got a paperwork that matched your identity. And then always this had been predicated on you doing the surgery. But the thing is, that's something that sterilizes you. And there is, in my opinion, a correct understanding in international human rights law that nothing, nothing at all, in particular, no right can be made dependent on being sterilized. And by now you're thinking about, you know, you have the right to have paperwork to match your identity as long as you get sterilized. And so now you didn't have to get sterilized. So now it's just any bloke can turn up and say, I feel like a woman and they give them the paperwork. So that's the way it went. It went like medicine law bureaucrats, medicine law bureaucrats. And now we've ended up in a place that people seem to think that you have an identity and that it's the law's job to certify that identity. Uh, that's a human right. And over here, there are doctors telling people a, a totally invented medical theory as to why this is the case. 
But of course, you know, you don't have to go to the doctor. You can just go and get the paperwork. Like it's it's an, a really interesting example of a slippery slope. Like, I, you know, the way people talk about the slippery slope fallacy, this idea that, uh, you know, you, you bring in abortion to a country like Ireland that didn't have an abortion law. And people say, ah, you know, there'll be a slippery slope. And they say, no, 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 that's the slippery slope fallacy. Our law says not past 13 weeks. Our law says whatever it says, two doctors or whatever. Well, actually, I now think there's a slippery slope fallacy fallacy, which is that once you do start doing these things, that the pressure builds up to do more. I think you've seen that very much with assisted dying in Canada. Slippery slope fallacy fallacy. Yeah, they're they're talking about extending our made laws to children and people with mental illness. And if you had said that, I mean, I wrote about doctor assisted dying back in about 2014, I think. And I talked to some of the people who were trying to change the laws in Canada. And I mean, you know, if you said that then, they would have said absolutely not. You know, these are really tightly drafted, carefully written, you know, only for people in certain very difficult conditions. Hardly anyone will use them. You know, and here we are. Yes, yeah, so this is the, this is, I think, the biggest case study I've ever like seen in slippery slopes. One thing that I'm I'm particularly fascinated with is is not the people who, who, who were sold you know this 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 false idea of changing sex and that society would accommodate them, but those who have transitioned as a means of gaining that that trans identity. And I believe that the vast majority of the females actually fall uh, into that category. And um, you were saying how it's quite a, a misogynistic um, framework. And I, I agree with you to an extent, but I, what what I've realized is that the framework that these the adolescent you know the teenage girls, young women, even pushing thirty, um, the 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 ideology that they have bought into and a lot of times have sacrificed their bodies to is the same the same goal that the feminists have, which is to dismantle the patriarchy. They're, mm -hmm. The way that they view it is that by undoing the sex binary, namely by not believing in it or, or queering their bodies to a certain extent, they're doing the exact same work as, you know, of, yeah, dismantling the patriarchy. They just see, they just go about it in a different way and they see the kind of traditional style feminists as upholding the patriarchy by being adamant that there are two distinct sexes. And so it's like same goal, but diametrically uh, different approaches to it. Yeah, and actually diametrically different endpoints as well. I mean, I think if you look back through the history, through women's history, um, and not just feminist history, but women's history, it, it is striking how often any attempt by a woman to free herself from any constraint gets immediately turned back on her body. Like one of the things that really gave me a shudder, I mean, Edward Shorter's book, the one that I'm thinking of, From Paralysis to Fatigue, that's what it's called. That was written in the early 1990s and there's no mention of trans things in it whatsoever. And he talks about, it's pre-internet basically. He talks about how the the, um, the medical profession for the 200 years there had been a medical profession was what, sh what shared and spread psychosomatic illnesses. But it, this, the role had been taken over by the media. And then, you know, now we see social media doing it. But anyway, he, he he goes through all of these different psychic contagions that were spread by doctors. And it's absolutely extraordinary the extent to which the doctors locate the trouble on the woman's sex organs. And like the women come in and complain about it being their sex organs as well. The whole thing lands on the woman's body, the woman's reproductive organs. 
I mean, even random things like um, lots of nosebleeds. If you had a lot of nosebleeds, this was taken to be a vicarious menstruation at one period. A period, haha, didn't mean that joke. Um, at one point, so they they would take out your uterus because you had a load of nosebleeds. So I think you know, there's nothing that seems to me so patriarchal as acting out on the woman's body the constraints on women. And it's very queer theory as well. Like you know, I was blissfully innocent of the existence of queer theory until I started researching my book and I wish I still was and I mean when people say to me what is it I know better than I was before you know but one of my friends in Ireland um you know she was in she was in all this bullshit like she studied queer theory at university and so on and she's come right out the other side and she's now a big campaigner against gender identity ideology anyway she said to me that one of the insights of queer theory that still really holds up is the way that whenever anyone does anything that breaks free of constraints or categories, the system flips it back and puts them back in. Like power, power does its thing. I mean, they call it knowledge power. So, for example, you know, there was a brief period when gay liberation was actually liberatory, when gay men stood up and said, I'm not taking the shame anymore, and they marched in public and so on. And now you look at pride, and it's the most corporate you know back in you know back in the system like if you were trying to break free of the man you wouldn't be at pride like pride is the man it's just the man wrapped in a rainbow flag power did its thing power reasserted itself and and, and absorbed what had been a liberation movement back into itself so i see these girls as doing that it's really sad they think to themselves i want to break free so what will i do i'll disfigure myself i'll turn it in on myself i'll cut my body rather than try to change the world i'll change me and, you know, feminists have always understood that as, as a thing that women do, like women starve themselves, they cut themselves, um, you know, they're holy saints who self-flagellate, they burn, they eat, um, you know, eat things that you're not meant to eat, like caustic things, you know, women, women express on their bodies the grief of being oppressed. And that's what these girls are doing. And they think that they're not oppressing themselves, but that's the history of women. That's what women do. It's just so sad to me that they can't see that they're just enacting the patriarchy on their own bodies. And I don't even use the word the patriarchy, I find it unhelpful. But you know, here we are, queer theory is right. The thing flips, power does its thing. And that's that's what we see throughout history, right? Is this power flip-flopping around and, and changing location, but the power never goes anywhere. And there's a quote yeah, by Jermaine Greer that- the same people end up on top. It's amazing. Yeah. Like this is not, the, those girls are not running the world. They're not cutting their breasts off and then going and becoming prime minister and becoming, you know, the leaders of companies and reordering the world. No, they've, they've neutered themselves by turning the, yeah. the, the you know, the, the, the escape back in on themselves. Very, very convenient for the people who are actually running the world. Like, you know, like actual feminist liberation requires that women work to dismantle things that hold women back. And that's slow, painstaking work. You know, that's getting maternity leave, you know, sending rapists to jail. Like, you know, the world isn't perfect and the world will never be perfect, but you can make it a bit better. But these girls instead, they they turn it all in on themselves. And as you say, I mean, we, we're not seeing any of those girls becoming powerful in the system no. like we don't see trans men billionaires pushing this agenda no the only time you see a trans man in this in the, the media is when he's pregnant or she's pregnant i mean that it's it, you know this the, the the portrayal of trans people is even more sexist and objectifying 
than the portrayal of people who are not trans identified. Like you see women doing other things besides being pregnant, but you never see trans men doing anything other than being pregnant. And I mean, trans women who are men, you know, they make the news for incredibly masculine things. Like they make it for sport, they make it for crime, and they make it for making a lot of money and being in powerful positions and changing laws and bloody well telling women what the fuck to do. Like one of my male friends, um, a man, why am I saying male? Uh, he's 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 somebody who, he's one of the people I know who thinks that queer theory actually has something to it. And, you know, he, we, he and I talk about these things. And he said, like, if you're a decent man, you know that you're louder, bigger, stronger, you take up space, you've been you've been acculturated to think that you're more important than women. So you know that when you're talking to women or in a group with women, you have to row yourself back a bit and not keep imposing yourself on everybody. But if you now identify as a woman, you don't need to do that anymore. So you look at these trans women who are just so determined that they're the best women, the best feminists, that are their job to tell women what to wear. There's a particular trans woman over here. I mean, I have this person blocked and I think they have me blocked too, but particularly likes taking pictures of me and criticizing my hair, my shoes, says trans exclusionary radical frump, you know, the sort of thing that if a man did it, well, he is a man, but when a man who identifies as a man do it, you say, my God, what a sexist pig. But he clearly feels himself free from this sort of constraint on his behavior because he thinks of himself as a woman. It's absolutely amazing. Like you never see sex so clearly than when you look at people who deny their sex. I quote that all the time. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I, I, I uh, it's, it's so accurate. I've spent a long time uh, just kind of, in, well, originally as a member and more, now more of an anthropological perspective in a lot of the online spaces for trans men and for, so, so for the, 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 uh, the actual females and the actual males in the respective trans communities. And my God, it's so, yeah, it's so evident. There's no, no, no more a feminine space than RFTM on subreddit. Oh my God, I know. I I mean, Eliza Mondegreen, as she calls herself, she's a friend of mine and she sometimes shares things with me. And there are these girls sitting around talking about how they're crafting about their pain or something like that. Like that's exactly what teenage boys are doing. (laughs) (laughs) And the trans women are all bloody talking about their high scores on computer games or something, you know, (laughs) and porn. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. They don't see it. Well, but they, they, they don't need to, you know, they've hardly, I mean, they temporarily don't need to. They've absolved themselves from the need to see it. Like, that's one of the things that the whole trans ideology does generally is it, it breaks pattern recognition. Like, so, yeah. this is a, so that's one version of it, that people don't see how stereotypically of their sex they are being because they now don't identify as their sex. But another one is that a lot of... Um, risk reduction and safeguarding is about pattern recognition. You know, adults need to protect kids, but some adults are dangerous to kids. Those adults are really nearly always men. So we set up rules that mean that no man is going to be allowed into certain spaces. You know, you're suspicious of all men uniformly until otherwise proven and so on. And then you allow some people to to, to pretend and make everybody else pretend that they're not their sex. And suddenly you've got men who are in a sacred caste and we know what happens when you say, oh, priests, a priest would never do that. You know, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Or, you know, you look at the fact that such a large proportion of all the 
trans-identified men in prison are sex offenders. And that's not because I think that trans women are more likely to be sex offenders necessarily. I think that the incentives in prison for a man who is a sex offender to identify as a woman are so obvious. But then you're not allowed to say that because you have to think of this person as a woman. And then you start saying idiotic things like, well, some women are sex offenders. I mean, I looked, I think it's about 100 women in this country in the whole of the UK are in prison for sex offences. And it's something like 17 or 18,000 men. So the difference is so huge, the pattern is so strong, and yet you're not meant to recognise the pattern. It makes us stupid. This ideology makes us all incredibly stupid. Yet it represents, a, you know, given the high correlation between autism traits and, and gender identity, or, or, or trans identity, um, and then one of the one of the strengths, if you can call it that, of people of Aspies or people on the spectrum is pattern recognition. So we're we're being represented by by something that is denying pattern recognition, even though most of the population is actually highly attuned to patterns. Yeah, yeah, and then you're not meant to be able to tell by looking at somebody whether they're male or female. Um, and I mean, you know, it's actually very hard to tell that either of you is female, but then that way around as much you know, it's much more effective because testosterone being what it is, you know, it's a one-way, it's a one-way gate type thing. But the other way around, like, honestly, you can really tell that most trans women are male, unless you have a really problem with reading faces. And yet we're told not to see that. And it's amazing how people can stop themselves from seeing something that they know socially they must not see. But it makes you stupid and it makes you vulnerable to predators I mean, you know, I'm absolutely certain that there are kids who are being groomed by people that everybody around them would know. I mean, we've seen some stories like this already in the press here. I'm sure you've got some too. You know, families who allow a trans woman to become a family friend and and, and know that they must treat this person as if they're a woman because, you know, it'd be bigoted not to. But I mean, you do totally different things with women and men around your children. You know, a woman who you don't know is the sort of person that you might ask to hold your baby if you needed to go to the loo on the train. You wouldn't do that to a man. They'd be mad to do that to a man. So, so these people, they, they turn off the things that they know perfectly well, the social facts that they know, the patterns that they know. And that's incredibly convenient for predators. One of the um, things that I realized, again, from my, my uh, evangelical upbringing and then to my engrossment into the, uh, the, the gender uh, church, um, is, is it's the same kind of um, uh, blasphemy response in your brain where you're, you realize you're thinking something that could have catastrophic uh, uh, implications and so you you turn it off or you reframe it and it's and it's not even conscious you're just like oh nope don't think like that fix that and I think that's I, I know I did a lot of that I think that's what a lot of people are doing without even realizing that they've kind that's of so interesting a new religion you know you know that that's called a thought stopping or thought terminating cliche have you come across this expression? Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's yeah, not so, even a, so so a cliche is something that you you know you, like you're you're speaking it to it, um, like in in I guess as far as communicated thoughts, but even in your brain, like no, but it is it is in the brain. In it, okay, it, it's 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 from it's an expression that's from thought control. What is it called? Thought it, it, I've forgotten the whole title, but it's a book by a guy called Robert J. Lifton about communist China. And it's thought control was what he called it. And it's the, he said that the way that the Communist Party, you know, during Mao's era kept control wasn't by having police because I mean, you know, no secret police can ever be everywhere or sufficient in numbers 
to keep control of the populace. So what you do is you teach these, what do you call brief, highly reductive phrases that are the start and end of every conversation, but a conversation's in here as well. So when you feel your thoughts wandering towards a dangerous point, like that bit where you might say, um, you know, why is it wrong to be gay if God made me that way? Or, um, you know, why would God make people so that you, they would end up in hell forever? How could a God be good if he makes people who end up in hell forever? And then the gender identity equivalent is like, you know, how can it be fair that a male person ends up in female sports? Or, you know, does identifying as a woman mean that you have a male pattern of crime or a female pattern of crime? Like these thoughts are dangerous because they're so obvious. The answers are so obvious and they're so heretical that you mustn't think them. And so people who have bought into this or who know that there are major social consequences to not buying into it or to speaking about it, they don't think about it either. Like it's it's not that they're thinking clearly, but just not saying it. They're not thinking because it's very hard not mm -hmm. to say things that you think. So you, you, it's a thought stopper rather than a conversation stopper. And the result is that when they do say things, they're such stupid things because they've made themselves stupid because they aren't allowed to think. Mm -hmm. Like an example I was thinking of recently was this thing of... Um, you know, when toilets come up, somebody will always, always say on Twitter, there will always be someone who says, but your toilet at home is gender neutral. And you're like, oh, my God, this one for the 10 fucking thousandth time. I can't take it, you know. And you just have to say, oh, so strangers off the street can come into your toilet at home. Can you? Can they? They haven't thought about that because the point of saying that is to lay a doubt to rest. Somebody ra raised something. It could lead awkward places. They say this sentence and now they cannot think again. And yeah, you're right. It's about it's about heresy. It's the same responses to a blasphemy. Don't think it. Speaking, speaking of, of, of Mao's China as well, that, that I was thinking about the Red Guard when you were talking about the um the the, the parents of these you know adolescent girls who were so wrapped up in this. I was thinking of like, you know, I think that's why, yeah, the um the Cultural Revolution in China was so successful because it was just it was the, you know, the adolescents who were all gung ho and then um, who were the enforcers, right? And uh, yeah, I was thinking, yeah, how their parents probably got on board right quick too. Um, yeah, or got um, reported. I mean, it was one of the most disgusting right. things they've done, and it's still visible in Chinese culture. Like when you do these awful things, like slavery or the Cultural Revolution, they echo for many generations. You know, they they're they're like a psychic wound on a nation, and yeah, the um the relationship in families in China has not recovered from that. Do you think we'll see something similar here, with this? No, I don't think that it's the same sort of thing. I think it's too piecemeal. There, you know, it's not a wholesale rupture. Um, I think it's it's dangerous. Um. The, the, the bad outcomes that I see, obviously, there's a generation in which there's going to be a very high rate of regret, um, iatrogenic harm. You know, I mean, it's a huge medical scandal and much larger, I think, than anyone we've ever seen before. Okay. I think um, it's part of a wider inculcation of severe mental health issues. But I mean, mental health issues are rocketing, absolutely rocketing. So this is just part of it. And that really worries me that children are not being taught to be resilient. They're being taught poor mental health habits, specifically taught them, like not just not taught good ones, actually taught bad ones. 
Um, and that will make for fragile generation and it's hard to come back from that. I think that the laws that have changed, you know, they actively have to be changed back and that's going to be very difficult because there are these people who need to be grandfathered in to the change, like because otherwise you can't get it through. But the more of those there are, the more difficult it is. So what you could see is in some countries like or some, you know, like some American states, for example, where this has been going on for a long time, you could see it just basically being impossible to offer single sex services of various sorts. And I mean, when things aren't available on single sex basis, if that's bad for women, like women's rights rely on some things being single sex much more than men's do. So I think we've taken a big step backwards on women's rights. And then we've distracted everybody who could be doing things for women's rights and also for gay people's rights. Like it's all been diverted to having to try to stop this. But it's not like women's rights were great before. And it's not like there weren't lots of gay kids who, you know, had internalized homophobia and were cast and you know, were, were being cast out by families. You know, pe people still get beaten up on the streets. And yet, so here, so the, there's a huge opportunity cost to having to tackle this. And then the destruction of institutions, that's perhaps the, the most worrying of all the outcomes, because so many of them have been really struck at their heart. Because one of the most striking things about this particular movement is the way that it destroys the key core mission of organizations. Mm -hmm. it, it turns out that if you introduce a lie into an organization that is set up with a purpose, so it's not just your, you know a carpet sales shop, it's got a mission, which is to do something like, um, you know, record official statistics, inform the nation about itself, or fight for women's rights, or promote the well-being of young gay people, or um, protect children from harm. You know, these these very mission-driven organizations, many of which are charities, but some of which are government agencies or whatever, or media organizations. You know, your mission is to tell you know to tell the news, to inform your audience. And you put a lie at its heart, what happens isn't just that it loses its mission, it doesn't just go, go astray, it turns around through 180 degrees and acts back in the opposite direction. So if you were an anti-censorship organisation like Penn or the ACLU, and then you decide to embed gender identity ideology into your belief system, you turn into censors, like you actively set out to be censors. So in America, where this has all gone so far, women's organizations are men's rights organizations, anti-censorship organizations are censorship organizations. Stat statistics offices say, write what you like for your sex. Um, and I mean, institutions are an incredible part of our, um, our well-being. They're part of what makes humans, you know, live longer, achieve things, have better health. I mean, when they talk about bringing democracy to countries that aren't democratic, they talk about institution building. You know, do you trust the government? Do you trust the civil service? Do you think the police are on your side or are they are they just a bunch of thugs? And here we are doing, an, I think, an unprecedented outside wartime level of institutional destruction. And it's not like the sorts of institutions that you can have creative destruction about, that you could just let them go and then new ones arise. Like maybe that will happen with the charities. Like at this point, I think Stonewall is unrescuable. So it's got to die and some new institution has to take its place. You can't do that with the National Statistics Officer, with the army or with the police, because they've got a formal status as part of the government. They're there now. We've got to try to rescue them. But I don't know how, if they've incorporated a lie and, and turned their mission back on, on its head. Yeah. OK, this has been a very worrying conversation, actually. We're, we're focusing on all the things I'm very say, worried well, about. <laughs> that's the big one. That's, that, that is actually lost, the big one. I lost so much hope in this last hour. 
Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I mean, so people come in because of the kids and the kids is clearly the worst thing, but I am a massive policy nerd. So the thing that worries me most is institutional destruction. Yeah, that's going to take yeah, a lot longer than the rest of the ship. Yeah. I didn't even think, yeah. And we can't leave that to the generation of fragile people, right? I mean, these kids are oh going to grow up yes. to be our leaders and in these positions. Uh, I don't see how well equipped they're going to be to respond to any of this. No, well, I mean, they're partly because they're indoctrinated, because they think this is right. Like the girls think it's not their right to say to men, no entry. Like they think that's bigotry. But also because of this more general teaching of fragility and elevation of victimhood and coaching in mental dis-ease, you know, they're not strong people. Of course, loads of them individually are great. But just on the, the population level, you know, we are making a fragile generation and we're handing over to them a bunch of stuff that we've broken. That's something that, that yeah, that I've really, I've been reading this book. I'm not sure if either of you know it, but um, the, rise of, uh, uh, the Rise of Victimhood Culture, um, it's basically uh, like kind of a, yeah, most of the ideas that are in Coddling of the American Mind are also in in, in there. Um, but yeah, explaining just the different um, kind of moral culture, cultures, you know, we until five minutes ago lived in what we know as a dignity culture where, you know, you're meant to be resilient and tolerant and, you know, other people's behavior and words shouldn't impact you. Um, you know, if it gets really bad, you take it up with the authorities. That's a distinction from earlier uh, social cultures or moral cultures, which was the honor culture where you want to be sensitive to offense as an opportunity to um, present your honorability, your your moral honorable superiority. So the more sensitive you are to slight, the, the more honorable you are and the opportunity to uh, defend that honor. Um, but this new culture that we have found ourselves living in, a victimhood culture, where your um, moral superiority is in seeing seeing oppression and slight and offense everywhere you go, not not primarily towards yourself, but towards those that are in you know a marginalized class. And obviously, if you're looking for this constantly, that marginalized class is going to be well everywhere because it, it, your moral superiority depends on requires you seeing it. this, right? So you're going to be seeing it everywhere, um, and then rather than taking that into your own hands, you have to seek. You 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 defer to or yeah uh, seek authority seek uh, the institutions to um, defend you and this uh, this perceived slight against this um. anyway so it's 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 a whole kind of moral takeover that uh, I've got a friend who's um, same age as me but she's uh, in university right now like in actual uh, physical university uh, taking uh, this cut. cut literature classes and basically she's like everything is just about how bad like we can't actually talk about the books because we're just talking about how bad the author was or how bad this idea like it's all just and I was like well I kind of I can explain to you why that is like they have to yeah. they have to focus on all the because that's where yeah that's where the the, the moral order is um but yeah, how yeah I absolutely that? see I see gender identity as a part of that because it's a way of becoming a victim and it's the only way that a, a, right. a straight white man can become a victim as well Right. Um, so it's right. particularly or, appealing. Or a, or a straight white girl. in, in the Well, at least she context, can kind of right? say, well, you know, sexism. But of course, then she gets called a Karen. So, I mean, it, it, just just being a girl is pretty much not anymore yeah. a victim. Yeah. Yeah. Because if yeah. Because you light, rely on your, your on your female sex, well, then you're you're propping up the patriarchy by believing in such a thing as that as that distinction. Yeah. And it's, it has to be in gender. 
Yes, it's interesting that you can't identify into racial oppression, but you can identify into sex-based oppression. It's or you know trans oppression. Yeah, no, I I also have read that book and think that it's very very insightful as to what's happening. Yeah, and and what's happening in the world of work? Like anyone who's worked with people, you know, leaving university now will will tell you, you know, there's there's as many great and talented young people as there ever were, but they really have a very different idea of how to respond to, for example, colliding deadlines or setbacks. You know, they they think it's really your job to make it all a lot easier for them. And Mm -hmm. that's not what you were hired for, mate. Doesn't bode well. No. Well, on that note, thank you very much for (laughs) uh, being here and talking to us. (laughs) No, we've got to say something a bit better than that. We've got to. <laughs> what are you working on right now? Not to go out on that note. I mean, what I would say is that in these sorts of situations, um, things happen that you would never predict. Like if I look back at what I predicted when I was when the book my book came out, which was mid twenty twenty one, and then the paperback was issued a year later. You know, a year later, so that was mid-2022, I wrote a new forward and afterward. And the forward was just to say, like, what it had been like since the book was written. And the afterward was to to move along some stories that I'd had to leave partway through because, you know, you know Maya Forstatter's case hadn't finished. And, you know, we were looking forward to the delayed Olympics, at which I predicted there would be at least one man competing as a woman. And so I sort of did the afterward on that. So, so a year after my book came out, I could just go, I told you so. A load of times two years after things are not where I thought they'd be in some ways I never would have predicted the speed of the fight back on pediatric gender medicine and sport at the state level in America I absolutely would not have predicted that Canadian parents would rise up in, in en masse as they have and um, you know Ireland which fell without a blow in 2015 went from having literally no gender recognition facilities whatsoever for anybody to having full self-ID by just filling in a form online, you know, I'm I'm really seeing, um, you know, quite organised resistance around the free speech issue and the hate speech issue in particular. But I mean, that's all about gender. So, so I don't I don't want to say like I can think of a whole load of reasons to be miserable and um, pessimistic, and I think they're big, and I think I'll be fighting this for the rest of my life now, and I think you may be as well, both of you, and you're much younger than me. But I also think that the good things will be things that we don't predict right now. You know, along will come a Riley Gaines, along will come another game changer like that. And it, people coalesce around it. And yeah, so I don't want to be completely pessimistic about it all. You really think that this, uh, see, I, I keep thinking that we'll see the end of this within a matter of years. And you're saying. Oh, no, no, like, no, no. For, It'll for, be the rest of our lives. Okay. Yeah, certainly mine. Because it's become so embedded and it's with so many people for whom. This is everything. Like Ireland only got rid of blasphemy laws very recently in the last few years. Now, nobody even prosecuted under them for absolutely ages. But the point was it wasn't in anyone's interests so much to get rid of the blasphemy law that they made that their political cause and any harm that it did by being on the books, because it probably did do some harm. It probably did have a chilling effect on some things. You know, it wasn't enough that anybody really cared So things can go on for an awfully long time when there's an organized group, it suits, even if that's a small group, a powerful small group, and even if it does quite a lot of harm to other people. And I mean, every day, every child that we transition is another person in the camp of, you know, this can never change, this has to stay. 
Right, but don't you, I, th I think you would agree with me that during this, this, this current phenomenon that we're living through, most of the people who transitioned will ultimately detransition. They'll ultimately decide, this is what I believe, that this, that this was a mistake, either that they themselves made, their, their medical providers made, their parents made. I think that the majority of people transition today will ultimately detransition and will be a walking billboard of the harm that these institutions and this philosophy has done. You don't- I just don't know. Don't I just don't know. I think, I think that people mm -hmm. who transition in their late teens, early twenties, maybe, but the kids who transition really young, the Jazz Jennings of the world, I mean, you know, we can look at those people as evidence of harm. I mean, you know, the harm that was done to Jazz was televised the whole way through. But is that somebody who's going to fight to undo those harms? I mean, they're so, there's, there's nothing, there's no way back. It's somebody who's had horrific things done to them in the name of it. Like, it, it's a very strong person who can say, you know, my body was mutilated in the name of an ideology I now reject. I think those people, many of them will will dig themselves further in. And then you forget about the other people who are very invested, which is the doctors. You know, anyone who facilitated this harm and anyone who made money from it, uh, the schools that taught it, the teachers who oversaw it, the people who thought that they were doing the right thing, all of those people have a very powerful incentive to fight against uh, returning to sanity on this. So, yeah, so I, I think there's, I really think we'll be fighting this for a long time because it got so far before we started to fight it. And I think that it's done an enormous amount of harm. And all we can do at this point is try to limit the harm. You know, it's destroyed so many people's lives and so many institutions. But I also just would say that, you know, my prediction, my prediction powers were pretty good for a year in advance. But two years in advance, there were things happening that I had not foreseen. So that's my that's my optimistic take out. You know, there's things that I can't tell, but they're not very short term. Yeah, it, Peter Bogosian, he recently said on um, uh, uh, general wider lens that he thinks in very short time, the people who have been promulgating this will be um, gaslighting to un like previously unbelievable degrees, basically saying, no, I never said that. I never thought that. I never believed that. Um, yeah, I wonder will they get away with it. Double down. Yeah, we've never had them on social media before, you know, we, we've, it's never been so easy to tell the whole story of people's lives. Like, I still think they'll do it. And, you know, I do feel vengeful when I think of the doctors in particular who facilitate this and the teachers and, you know, the absolute, just the cheek of these teachers who go in and say that they're non-binary and are then proud that half the kids in their nursery class are non-binary or something like that. Like, they're horrific people. But I think they believe but it. I think, I think, do they? Yeah, they do. But I mean, it's so narcissistic. It. Narcissistic people believe they're narcissistic bullshit. But it's still narcissistic bullshit, you know? They've no right to impose themselves on these kids like that. None whatsoever. They shouldn't even be in those jobs. It's the institution that's fucked up here. They should never have been hired. You know, people like that should be marched out of the school and then marched a bit further away as well. But what I was going to say is that in, in my slightly sort of self-righteous way of thinking about it once I decided to write the book like after I'd met these detransitioners and I decided that I had to write the book the way I framed it in my mind was I can't stop this happening but I can limit the number of kids who get sterilized and you know that's a manageable goal I don't know how many fewer kids will be sterilized because I wrote my book but it's not zero it's more than zero and that'll do me um so I have a good friend a close friend who's an orthodox Jewish rabbi and they've just they've just recently come through, you know, Orthodox Jewish holiday season. And on one of those, you're invited to reflect about um, 
So I'm saying this to two people called Aaron. So I'm possibly telling you things that you know about your own culture. And, you know, I'm a, I was brought up Roman Catholic and everything I know about Judaism is from this one particular person. Anyway, you're invited to reflect on what will be written about you in the book of life at, at the point of your death. And if it is, fewer kids were sterilized because she wrote this book. I'll take it. That's great. That'll be me. Um, yeah. But it's not a, a sort of we can overturn this, we can get back to where we were type goal now. It's gone way, way, way beyond fixing at this point. All we can do is just have fewer kids sterilized, more institutions that we can rescue rather than have to burn to the ground. It's so split down party lines that that it's become a partisan issue. And so I think what what could potentially happen is you know, elections happen, everything shifts in one direction, another election happens, the, you know, the opposing party gets into power, things shift back. So I think it's going to be a lot of, of a pendulum swinging back and forth and laws changing and then changing back. And I, I mean, maybe, maybe, um, like we've had conservatives in power here for, the thir- for 13 years, and it's all happened under their watch. So, you know, you, you, the the sneakiness whereby people can change practice, like there's just to give you one more example, I know we've been talking for far too long, but anyway, to give you one, one example, um, it's part of the NHS constitution, like the NHS is the National Health Service, and it's part of its constitution that there have to be single sex wards. But there's Annex B was written to the constitution, and that says where it says sex, you should, you should um, take the patient's state of gender identity. So... That happened, like ministers promised that there would be single sex wards and then civil servants, ideological civil servants captured by Stonewall and others just wrote in the the little fine print. Um, I also, I do think though that where the the popular opinion thing that you mentioned, like things are moving, popular opinion is definitely going our way. The more people know about this, the less they like it. So what happens there is that if a, if, a, if a party is out of power, a party like the Republicans in America come into power, I have many problems with that. But anyway, let's put those aside for the, this conversation. You know, they say, no, we're not passing the Equality Act. We're not putting gender identity into law. We're going to have Title IX really mean girls, not people who think of themselves as girls, et cetera, et cetera. In four years time, if the Democrats come back in, it's an awful lot less of a vote winner to flip flop back. Like the tide, you know, the, the origin window or the tide, whatever your metaphor is, has moved. So, yeah, that that's also, a, I suppose, a reason to be cheerful. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We couldn't possibly leave it with, it's all shit. We're going to die. <laughs> uh, we've been talking. Thank about- you so much for being here, Helen. It's been a true pleasure and uh, very depressing. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for having me on. <laughs> I'm sorry it's taken us so long to get you on the show, but it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I don't know that I knew any of the things that we were talking about now a year ago, so it's been good to wait, really. I mean, you know, we've had some really interesting thoughts that have have been very stimulating for me, so thank you for that. Excellent. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.